Today, a continued attempt, maybe another attempt, to speak peaceably to an affirmative topic with some very negative associations. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. Last episode, we introduced uh, affirmative action with some history about it and then got down to the crux of the matter, which uh, that is that it's an expression of uh, a re- a, an argument known as reverse discrimination, that when you talk about affirmative action, the pushback against it comes from this perspective that says all you've really done is reverse discrimination. You have taken discrimination, which used to be directed against everyone who's not white uh, or male, and now you've turned that uh, in the other direction and made the discrimination about everybody who is white and male, and that doesn't seem fair. And we talked about the fact that there are some reasonable groundings for that complaint. We also talked about the fact that there is some uh, abuse of rhetoric there. That's a little strong. There is some of that. I mean, some people will abuse rhetoric to have a conversation about anything. Uh, But there is some rewording of things there that makes it uh, cloak where the real problem lies uh, with the idea of race-conscious decisions being unfair. So we talked about that last time. You can go hear that on on the last part. But then I said, before we get too far into issues about a reverse discrimination and why people talk about it that way, and then why affirmative action you know, should make sense to us, not meaning all the policies and regulations and all the forms that it's taken over the decades, but I mean the basic idea, the the basic tenet to affirmative action, I think is actually one we can agree on from either side that makes sense, uh, that, that is easily grounded for either side. I think we can make the case that that is possible for us. And I said, but the only way to get there, and this is part of the trick, is to leave behind the culture warrior approach to the topic. Because if you're still in the culture war, then all you're doing is you're saying, well, I'm a conservative or I'm a liberal. And if you're conservative, then you say, oh, affirmative action is terrible. Believe me, I know all these lines. Affirmative action is terrible because it kills the free market. It eliminates personal responsibility. It, it, it removes all the instigation and the motivation for people to lift, them up by the, lift themselves up by their own bootstraps and, you know, and so on. I can give the rest of the speech, but it's not necessary right now because I want us to stop doing that. Or on the liberal side, it's automatic because support for affirmative action is the only way, If and I'm saying this from the liberal side, if you were a liberal in the culture, still bound to the culture war and choosing your side and arming yourself up, then you would say, look, any argument against affirmative action is just an expression of personal racism, hatred, or selfish materialism. Uh, and I understand both sides. I understand why the conservatives say what they do about it. I understand why the liberals say what they do about it in the culture war. 
But instead of that, if we just looked at where there is legitimate deprivation, where something is missing, being deprived, someone is being deprived of something, then it makes the questions a little easier to talk about. And if you say, well, I don't believe there is any anyone being deprived of anything in America. There's people who make bad choices. It's not, that's not actually what we think. Uh, what, you know, we want, we, so we want to say, and I mentioned this last time, so I'm sort of picking up where I left off last time now. What we want to say, and when I say we, I mean right now on the conservative side, more conservative side against the idea of affirmative action, is we want to say, oh, you know, everyone is born with the same opportunities here in the United States. That's why we're the land of opportunity. And, uh, you know, if, they're, if, if you're born here, there aren't laws keeping you from being able to go to school. There aren't laws keeping you from starting a business or from saving your money or from whatever. And so although we say that, we don't really believe that. We know that the laws aren't there, at least in most places, the laws aren't there. We don't really believe everyone has the same opportunities. If we did, and I made this point last time, we wouldn't be trying to put our kids in better schools. If we thought every child has exactly the same opportunities in the United States of America because it's such a great country, then we wouldn't check to see how good the schools are in a neighborhood before we're willing to buy the house. And we wouldn't be willing to spend an extra $50,000 or $100,000 on a house just because it's in a slightly better school district than the one down the road. This one has a better program. Why do you want your kid to be in a school with a better program? Because they're going to have more opportunities for a future, right? And if that's the case, then what you're acknowledging is that the resources you already have have opened the door for you to make it easier for your offspring to succeed in the future because you're removing barriers for them. That makes it obvious that we know that there are some barriers to success in the future. Kids in bad schools are at a disadvantage. This is not the only disadvantage, but it's an obvious one when it comes to opportunities. And that's why you look for better opportunities. And if you say, yeah, but I created the wealth that I have, and therefore my kids do have a better opportunity. That, that sounds great. That's amazing. That's fantastic. And yet there are still more persistent barriers that remain, even in regards just to this one narrow example that I'm giving about schools. And the one I'll give has to do with DISD, the Dallas Independent School District. And I'm not saying this about a current policy. I do not know how they do this right now. So I'm not offering it as a critique. I'm not offering it as expertise. This is just what happened in the past that I know about from parents who told me about it. So this is, and, for, and firsthand, by the way, parents who wanted their kids to get into the school, that this was the deal. So DISD, and I think this is fantastic. I think there are a lot of great things about DISD. DISD has magnet schools or whatever they're called now. But these are schools with programs of expertise and that create greater opportunity for students who have uh, real opportunities uh, based on, sometimes it's gifted and talented type stuff, and sometimes it's just uh, the ability to focus on a certain discipline or, you know, some, some skill uh, that you might be able to move into the marketplace immediately or take off to college or something like that, whatever it is. So really cool concept, and it's been around for decades, I know that, 
But the way you get into a magnet school is supposed to remove all of those barriers. You don't get to buy your way into a magnet school. You go and you apply. And and basically, now this is, again, this is past. I don't know now how to do it. You can go research that and figure it out. I'm not making any authoritative claims. But based on the testimony of the parents who talked to me about it, it was basically first come, first serve. You sign up. They have a day when you're going to be able to register. You just go get in line and you sign your kid up for the school. And if you make it in time, you get to sign your kid up for the school. Sounds all good and equitable. And that way money doesn't come into the equation. And if you're in the neighborhood, you know, you try to apply. And if you're not in that neighborhood, you can drive down there and apply, uh, you know, uh, outside of your own neighborhood. So anybody can go to any of these schools. That's the idea. If you get there first and apply. But what that leads to is a revelation about the inequalities that are a little harder to overcome. Because what would happen is parents would go to the best school with the best program, the best opportunity for their their student, and they would want to sign up. And so they would go, and because they had a little extra money, they could take a day off at their job. They could hire someone to take their drive their kids somewhere. They could Uber down there and be there at a certain time, or they could stay overnight and ask someone else to cover all their responsibilities the next day. The people who had advantages were able to get into the line for the first come, first serve request. And those who didn't have any money, guess where they were during the sign-up? They were at work because they couldn't miss a day of work because they had bills to pay and they couldn't get someone else to drive their kid to wherever they needed to be and so on. You get the idea. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to say this was a terrible idea and I'm certainly not blaming DISD. You learn as you go and you do things the best way you can possibly do them and everything has some disadvantages. Again, all props and respects to DISD for having magnet schools of the quality that they have. Hallelujah. I'm making a point about things that are really hard to overcome in any society, in any culture at all. They're always going to be there. We're fallen people in a fallen world. And this is how we live. We have to overcome problems that we have. And some of those problems create inequalities. I mean, it's part of what justice addresses in scripture, right? Righteousness addresses in scripture. So so that idea should make it clear to us that it makes sense that we would want to say, well, we don't want people being excluded just because they lost as it's referred to, some people would think this is a negative term. It's, just, it's not a negative term. It's just a part of reality in the world. I don't, it's not confusing at all. Just because somebody lost the social lottery, because they happened to be born into a more impoverished area of town. I mean, surely we don't hold the view that because we were born into a wealthy family, somehow we deserve the advantages and privileges we got by being able to I mean, even just have better nutrition or to live in a neighborhood where there wasn't a food desert or to be able to go to the best schools or to be able to get tutoring when we struggled in some subject matter or whatever it is, those advantages are real. Surely we don't think, ah, God wanted me to have advantages over everyone else. And so he birthed me into a wealthy family where I deserve to be born. And those impoverished kids, they deserve where they're born too. No. No, I don't know anybody who thinks that way. Well, then a social lottery is not a bad way to characterize where you're born. Okay, you were blessed and fortunate to be born into a wealthy family. Others were not. They were born into families that have no money whatsoever. Others were born into families and then abandoned by their parents. But are you going to blame the kid? No. So it's obvious to me that we would say to ourselves, well, let's, 
let's work hard to overcome the barriers that would keep that person from being able to move forward in life with the same advantages of someone who did win the social lottery. And again, it's not, we can't overcome all the barriers. We can't eliminate every type of hindrance, but we can eliminate some. We can create some open doors and we should do something about that. It doesn't seem to me conservative or, uh, or liberal that we should have that much disagreement about that part. And I'll give an illustration in a little bit to make the point that a lot of times the objections that we have aren't really to that. If you could just be focused on that, forget the government. Just forget the government altogether. If I were here making a plea for people to give money so that we could provide an education to some students who are from whom it's being excluded because they don't have the money to go to this better school, would you help us with some money so we can go help them? Most people would say, well, that's a reasonable request. Go and help them if you can, because I'm not the government. So, see, I'm not, I'm not saying this has to be about the government. I'm just saying we ought to be comfortable with the idea that we need to help some people. It just makes sense. It doesn't mean giving them an advantage over everyone else. It means giving them an advantage over the disadvantages they already had. The second thing, so that's the first thing. And I, and I, again, there's a lot more detail to give to it, but I got to move forward or we won't get to any of this. The second thing that we should be able to agree on on the conservative side and the liberal side, is that quotas don't really help. So if what we say is, well, we're going to hire at least 25% minority, or we're going to have at least, you know, this number, and that means we don't hire anyone that breaks the quota. You know, we're not, we're not, we're going to refuse to break the quota. If you establish quotas, they really don't help. Now you may not understand, you may not understand why. Let's say, let, let me take, make the assumption for a moment that you're a conservative. I'm not saying you are, but let's suppose you are for a moment. You hearing me say that, you might say, why on earth would a liberal want to agree with that? The quotas don't help because that's what they want. But you're wrong. That's not what an informed uh, liberal wants, even with affirmative action. And I'll explain why. So we can actually agree on the idea that quotas don't really help. And actually, people do agree on this on both sides. It's just that usually on the side where we're pummeling affirmative action all the time, we've just sort of ignored the fact that people have moved past the idea of quotas. Everybody kind of agrees that's not a good approach. Why is that? So what, what we think initially, and this, is, and this is what was happening originally, we think that meeting a quota so you have to hire at least 25% minority uh, employees or something like that actually changes uh, society or actually changes your institution or the structures that exist that were causing the problem. But over time, we have learned that that is just not the case. That's not what happens. And in reality, it can reinforce stereotypes and problems that were invested in the structures and the systems that existed Anyway, and, and, and some of those reasons are pretty simple. Like, uh, for instance, it creates uh, tokens, and uh, people use this term, and they don't always know what it means, and I'm not going to get into it in detail right now. But, you know, it creates tokens of moral satisfaction. Like, oh, oh, look, here's proof. Here's a token 
that I've done it, you know, that I've done something to cross the line. So I, it's, it's like when people say, and they, they, they don't say the mom part, but you'll understand what I mean when I say it this way. It's like when someone raises their hands and they say, oh, look, mom, I have two black friends. See, I'm not prejudiced anymore. People don't say the look mom part, I know, but, but people do say that, you know, I have a black friend. How could I be prejudiced? That's, uh, that's, that's what we mean by, <laughs> by tokenizing, by the way. You know, so you 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 hold up the flag of your cooperation with someone who's different from you and say, "See, I can't be dis- I can't be discriminatory. I couldn't be prejudiced. I can't be a racist. I have a black friend, or I have some black friends." That's sort of what quotas do, also. Well, look, we have thirty percent uh, African Americans who are in our program. We have twenty percent uh, Hispanics. That reflects the demographics of the population. How could we be racist? as if people just being present also reflects the fact that you are serving and aware of and representing those persons who are present. It, the reality is those quotas don't address at all, just by being quotas, what was keeping us from reaching the thresholds that we found as goals organically, that is naturally. In other words, why, weren't, why, why didn't you already reflect the demographic of the population around you? Something was keeping you from doing that and just flooding your hallways with people who look the way that makes you feel better about what you're doing doesn't change those barriers that existed before. They're still there. And so what you end up with is what happens in a lot of places and to a lot of institutions. You end up with people who are present and they make you feel better about your representation of other populations, but you're still not serving them well. And what you do is just reinforce their view that your institution doesn't serve that population very well, and then reinforce for you that you don't need to do anything different. Look, we've already met the numbers. We're already satisfying the goals. Let me give you an example. In, uh, in And a lot of times this happens in government uh, agencies because you can enforce change without having to change any laws. You know, the person in charge can just say, we're going to do it. The mayor signs a document. The president signs an executive order, like I said, about contractors with government, uh, you know, government, uh, well, contracts. That's what contractors do, I know. Anyway, the point is, uh, you can just sort of force it in the government. So the military does it a lot, police forces, firefighters, you know, firefighting and stuff like that. So a firefighting example, because I've had a few friends who were associated with firefighting. Some were actually firefighters. Some went through the training school, didn't get into the program, whatever. And so I say some, it's one of each of those. But the point is, in having a conversation with them, they mentioned this affirmative action in uh, in these uh, fire training programs in the effort to, to use affirmative action to sort of uh, broaden uh, the representation of firefighters in whatever their, you know, uh, fire department was. And so what would happen is you would have these efforts going on to include women in the program. And I'm, and I am choosing women because this is the, this is the emphasis that was going on at the time. So to include women, but what it did was generate hostility and doubt and fear among the men who were in the firefighting program. Oh, well, they couldn't pass the test. So they, now they've changed the test. So these women can get into the program and Someone's going to die because this, you know, female isn't able to carry a big guy out of the building, you know, something like that. And, 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 and 
I don't doubt that that may have happened at times. There may have been times when tests were changed, when somebody said, you know what, we're going to change the requirements and therefore change the role that this person might have while they're fighting fires. And that may have changed the structure of the fire department. So all of that's possible. But you know what I said to the people who were sharing that with me was, and I've said this to a couple of them now, did you think about asking this question? Do you, do you really believe, first of all, this question, do you really believe there are no women who could pass the tests. Now, I met women. I know some women. And that's just nonsense. I know women who can run men under the table and who can lift men under the table. I don't know what that means, but you know what I mean. I do know what it means. It means the man collapsed and he's under the table now because he was trying to lift more weight than he could lift. I've met, I've met them. I know, I know when we were in high school and we were thinking, oh, if I were ever outrun by a woman, I'd be so embarrassed. I can't think of very many women who couldn't outrun me now. I mean, that would be just, you know, nonsensical. The reality is what we should have been asking ourselves in those circumstances is why aren't the women who could pass these tests signing up? Why aren't more women trying to get into the fire department. And, and it would have been, we obviously would have been able to respond by saying, well, there are women who could pass this test who aren't interested in coming into an environment where everyone who works with them is going to look at them and say, are you just here because they compromised? Did they just go get you because you're a woman? And if you say to yourself, people don't say that, I guarantee you they do. Because regarding race, when I have hired people who are of a different race than white, in my institutions, I have had people say the words to me, well, I don't know for sure why you hired that person. I mean, is it just because they were that? And that, that is so misguided and so wrong and so racist, I, I just, I was flabbergasted in the moment, but forget all of that. The fact that that question is asked is not unknown to the people who could be applying for the positions. And what we ought to be saying to ourselves is, I wonder why more people who could qualify and who could pass the tests aren't trying to be a part of what we do. I wonder if we're creating a hostile environment to keep them out. And if maybe these actions people are taking to say, you know, you're going to have to create some more diversity in your fire department or in your police department or in your government or in your business or in whatever your college is or among your student populations or whatever. I wonder if they might not be saying to us, you know, you're not aware of it, but you've actually got a pretty big barbed wire fence keeping people out who don't look like you. And by the way, Part of the evidence of that being the problem is that when the problem was someone turning 45 or 50 and suddenly not being able to lift quite as much as they used to lift or being able to run quite as far or fast as they used to run, nobody was saying drum them out. Nobody. The idea was, no, 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 no. These guys, their experience, it makes it worthwhile. So you could find a way when it's somebody like you. It becomes a little more challenging when we're saying, I think people who aren't like us might also be able to carry the load. And so what? So the point is, quotas do not help with that. Because when you're trying to satisfy quotas and you just stuff somebody into the slot because they're the right color or the right gender, then you end up reinforcing those prejudices. 
Because everybody on the other side just says, well, I know why they got the job. They just got the job because they had to satisfy the numbers. And even though they may be wrong, it reinforces that sense that they were justified in their reluctance to cooperate with the idea of affirmative action. Now, may I remind you at this point, if you didn't hear the history part back on the, in, the, in the previous episode, quotas were undone in affirmative action, especially regarding schools and recruiting, in 1978. That's a, you know, what is that, 25 years ago? No, wait, wait, 45 years ago. What am I saying 25 years ago? I'm like a child again. 45 years ago, quotas were undone, and we're still acting as if that's the way these things are going to be enforced. So, you know, so let's let, let's leave that behind for a moment and say this in, instead. Let's go to the crux of the matter. The, and, and, and by the crux of the matter, I mean where there are real problems. There are real problems that do come from affirmative action. Problems that you may agree ought to exist or not agree ought to exist, but everything we do has cost and uh, reward, everything. So if you do something, you're preventing yourself from doing something else because you can only do so much at a given moment. Everything you do has costs and benefits, right? So the same thing with affirmative action and the same thing with not practicing affirmative action. And so the crux of the matter should be that we could have an honest conversation where we say, look, here are the advantages and disadvantages of doing it and the advantages and disadvantages of not doing it. And now let's talk about which one we think is more important to take into consideration. So it, so, so, so on the crux of the side that says, hey, there's a problem with affirmative action, it, there is a disadvantage that it creates. It creates a disadvantage for the majority in some ways. Now, again, I don't think that's long-term. I don't think it persists. I think it endures for a little while. And then you start reaping such a benefit that you realize this is all good. Helping everyone do better is good for everyone. But again, that's long-term. It's an economic argument. It's part of what I I believe because I believe in free markets and stuff. So, but, but in the short term, of course there's a disadvantage to the majority. If you're, so let's, metaphor, this is not about a game. I'm not saying it's a game. It's a metaphor. But if you're used to starting games with $10,000, so you're playing Monopoly, and you get, you get $10,000 in Monopoly money, and then we suddenly come to you and say, you know, you're only going to get $5,000 to start the game this time. You know, you can say, oh, I'll have to work harder now. Okay, this is going to make this game more challenging. And you can have fun with it because it's a game, but it's a disadvantage. And the reason you have to be more focused or more intentional or more cautious or more whatever it is you're going to be is because you started with a disadvantage from where you were before. That it is, that is, that, that's reasonable. Doesn't mean you have to give up. Doesn't mean you can't do anything. It's a disadvantage. But if you realize that everyone else has been starting with $5,000 to begin with, not $10,000, but $5,000 to begin with, then your disadvantage takes on a different hue. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it looks a little different now, right? This is why people who are advocating for affirmative action say they're not at, and I'm, and I'm saying, if you take the position where you favor affirmative action, then you don't say, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're giving an advantage to minorities. 
uh, or the underrepresented, whoever it is. All you say is, look, we're just trying to level the playing field. We just want to be able to start with the same amount of money as everybody else. And whatever, whatever it takes to bring about that leveling of the playing field, that's the goal. Because it then creates a greater opportunity for other people. So there, and, and again, so let me pause for a second and say, that's, I think that's a legitimate uh, case to be made by somebody who's advocating for affirmative action to say, we're not trying to create an unreasonable advantage for minorities or for the underrepresented. We are trying to level the playing field. I hear it stated that way all the time. Let me, let me come from the opposite side for a moment. There is, if you're looking at affirmative action as something that was going to be enacted, there is a genuinely negative outcome that can result from it. And I've seen where this has happened. I've seen, I've encountered it myself. All, All of us have in some way or another. And it follows the line that the oppressed become the oppressors. It's just a part of human nature that this happens. It's not a good thing. It's, it's a bad thing. We should never be this way, but we are this way. It's why people have this, def- people have this defensive mechanism. So, so for instance, if the, if the Democrats decide one time that they're going to implement the nuclear option, and I mean by that the legislative nuclear option, that you only have to have a simple majority in order to force something through the Senate or whatever it is, if they're going to do that, if the Democrats are going to do that, well, then by golly, we're going to do it as the Republicans next time. And the people who were oppressed because they were in a minority for a little while in the Senate, suddenly they're implementing the nuclear. Well, it's not our fault. They were the first to do it. And now we're just going to shove it down their throat. They're going to get the same thing. The oppressed become the oppressors. It's human nature. It's ugly. It's irrational. Uh, but it is human nature. It's what we do. It's what Gandhi was against, you know, the oppressed becoming the oppressors. We do that. But that, and, 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 and that does happen. There are environments, I could give examples, I don't know that they'd be that helpful, but, but there, are, there are environments where some oppressed group has finally gotten a foothold. Finally, they have representation. Finally, they have someone in charge of something. And the use of that opportunity is then to completely exclude everyone else and say, no, this is ours, and you are not welcome here. And sometimes it's just little piddling things that wouldn't seem important in, in a church committee or something like that, you know? Other times it's very significant, a ruling group being forced out of government in some nation and the other group taking charge and then slaughtering the people who had been slaughtering them. You can see why, uh, for instance, uh, Lincoln's approach after uh, the Civil War was so important uh, to offer this uh, relief from criminal prosecution to the people who had been fighting on the opposite side of the line to begin with. Okay, so anyway, the oppressed can become the oppressors. That's a reality. But a disadvantage, and it's just, I, 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 I just wish we could keep this in mind. A disadvantage to something, even a real disadvantage, is not necessarily a one-and-done proof that whatever the idea was shouldn't be implemented, that it's a terrible idea. Disadvantages go with everything, unintended consequences and sometimes inherent consequences. But you just say that is a disadvantage, but it's worth it. The risk that in some environments you're going to have the oppressed becoming the oppressors doesn't mean we shouldn't create opportunities for oppressed people 
to overcome their oppression. Right? I mean, this is uh, that's an irrational statement. I mean, obviously, we want oppressed people to overcome their oppression. Obviously, we don't want them to become oppressors. And obviously, sometimes some of them might. You know, this is just what happens. But creating an equality and opportunity, creating liberties for more people is still a good thing, even if some people are going to abuse those liberties. So, you know, here's an example to make the point that what, and this is, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to say this, an example to make the point that we're not always transparent in our argumentation about affirmative action because we're not really talking about whether we're willing to take some affirmative action to overcome uh, inequities in our institutions or whatever. We're not really talking about that. Sometimes we're only talking about whether we like government or not. Uh, so, for instance, I, I had a person visit my office a few years back and shared with me his uh, personal, and this is a wealthy person, and he was a, a genuinely humble, good person. And he had a personal scholarship plan to help people of color from South Dallas uh, overcome uh, some uh, inherent barriers that they were facing in education that had to do with their poverty. He wanted to help them overcome that by offering them full scholarships to go to a really wealthy and high-quality prep school in North Dallas. And so he shared with me his whole plan. So he and he and he'd been doing this for a few years. It wasn't like he was sharing it and he wanted us to help him or something. He was just telling me about what he'd been doing. And so he would find a family somewhere that had real financial need. Their students showed academic potential and they weren't going to get to go to a decent school. And he would have a meal with them and say, hey, listen, this is what I want to do. I want to give your kids a full scholarship to this particular school in North Dallas. And it'll be a huge open door for them. They would weep and be grateful and express their thanks and, you know, all that kind of stuff and hugs all around. This is how he described it to me. And never in several years of presenting it, I can't remember how many families, but he did tell me it was a good number. It was, you know, 12 or 20 or something like that, you know. Not one of them actually accepted the scholarship. Not one uh, accepted the scholarship. And I told him, I said, I can, I can explain to you why that is. Uh, because what you're doing is saying, I want to pay for your kids to go to a school where they're not going to be at home at all, uh, where they're going to be foreigners in a foreign land. Uh, and, you, and, and where they can learn to forget what you've been teaching them. They can learn to forget their identity with your community and your family and so on. And so, you know, I mean, it would be different levels of different parts of that for different families, but, you know, it's, it's an obvious issue. Uh, and he had not considered that. Uh, so that, that's one side of what I wanted to mention, but here's, here's the other side of what I wanted you to hear. Uh, and, and this is, this is the side issue for him, but it's the main reason I'm bringing it up for us. Because not even the most right-wing person I know, and that person was in the room at the time, thought his plan was somehow undermining the personal responsibility of those to whom he was offering the scholarships. Not a whimper of complaint. Not a hesitation. Not a downward glance. One. Not one. Man, this guy's got money. He has raised it himself. He's earned it himself. He's willing to spend it for someone else to be able to go to a private school and get the education that we want them to have. And so, man, hallelujah, that's free enterprise and that's independence. And wow, what a great guy. And, then, and, and all that makes sense to me. It's fine. And he wants to help these students. Fine. No problem whatsoever. The problem is that that's exactly what affirmative action is trying to do. It's trying to say, let's offer some assistance 
to students who, by their poverty or other social disadvantage, would have been excluded from opportunity-creating relationships, whether it's a job or a or an education or whatever the opportunity is. Let's give them an opportunity. I get it that there's a difference between an individual doing it and the government doing it. Believe me, I get that. I love free enterprise. I love the free market. I love a small government. I'm, I'm really for all of that. None of that has to do with whether we should think giving someone a leg up, giving someone not a hand out as the rhetoric goes, which I find cheap, but you know, it's the rhetoric, so I'll say it, but a hand up makes sense. What's wrong with someone helping someone else? It's what we do with our private money. It, now, if your objection is to say, but I don't think the government should force it, then just say that. Then we don't have to say, well, it doesn't make sense to help people who are at a disadvantage. They can help themselves. That's not the problem. We know we should help people who are at a disadvantage, who are at a social disadvantage. We know we should help them. We just if your if your objection is you don't want the government to do it, just limit the objection to that, and let's have a transparent con, uh, conversation about the scope uh, or magnitude of the government itself or their intrusion into private lives or whatever. That should be the discussion instead of the other. I get that. Then we can have a legitimate conversation about where the objections really are, and then we might actually be able to get somewhere. By the way, so. You know, those objections about personal responsibility and, you know, uh, taking, you know, taking responsibility for yourself and then raising yourself up by your own bootstraps and the ubiquity of opportunity for anyone in America, those aren't really the problems that people have with affirmative action. The problem is government bloat, government distrust, and that's where we should be having that part of the conversation. A defensible, practical way to move on, to implement affirmative action is what we're always actually looking for. You know, how do we help people who have a disadvantage of any kind, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. How do we actually help them instead of just making ourselves feel better about what we're doing or not doing or whatever? And so that's what I want to share with you. Uh, I think these are the things that should be an essential element of that. And it's what we practice at Criswell College, by the way, where I'm the president. Uh, and I've enjoyed being, I enjoy, I love being here. I love making this difference. Not, not because it's some huge agenda, but because there are populations of students we have not served well enough and that we're learning to serve better as we go along. And so a part of that, and we have a whole uh, uh, diversity initiative that's based on this, it's not built around quotas and saying, well, we have to have a certain number of minorities or we're not doing a good job. But instead, based on this idea of measuring up to certain thresholds that we set. And let me explain the difference. It's a huge difference, a, a massive difference. We want to improve how our institution serves the entire population. We don't want barriers. And so we've established some thresholds or some standards for measuring how well we're doing. That's all. For measuring how well we're doing and then figuring out how much, how we could do better to serve every population. And so what we do is we measure the population around us, whichever one that is, whether it's in our denomination or in the city as a whole or in the region or, you know, all students who could go to higher education or whatever. Measure the population around you and then set your outcome or your goal as being equivalent with that population, you know, because, because if you're not, there's some reason 
that you're reaching more of this type of person than that type of person. And I don't mind reaching this type of person. I want to reach all of this type of person that we can. But I should then ask myself, I wonder why we didn't reach as many of that type of person. I wonder if there was something that we were saying or doing or that we didn't provide or something in uh, the programs that we offer, something that doesn't appeal or that sort of turns off that particular part of the population, whoever it is. And so we ask those questions. We, and, and so when we measure the institutional alignment with that population, we get to observe what it is that we're doing that's maintaining or creating barriers to underrepresented or underserved populations. And, you know, ironic, and this is ironic, I think, that those who are in any institutional effort to do that, to implement some kind of, and I'm, I'll use the word affirmative action here, to implement some goal of reaching a more diverse population or representing populations better around them, ought to be asking themselves the, the same questions I'm about to mention to you in just a moment that I'm about to mention to you regarding affirmative action in general, but about why opponents of affirmative action are still not on board with the very palatable idea of offering a hand up to someone otherwise disadvantaged. That is, if I were here just saying to you, you have to accept affirmative action or you're a racist, then I would be creating a barrier to you being able to participate in the conversations I want to have about affirmative action. I don't want to create that barrier. I don't think any of us should create that barrier. So I'm saying to all of those who are in favor of affirmative action and diversity that we also ought to be asking ourselves questions about the barriers we're creating to being able to have these conversations with parts of the population who don't like affirmative action. We don't, I don't have to say, I need to agree with them. I need to offer them a good place to be a racist. I'm not saying that, but I am saying we could say to ourselves, you know, I wonder if my characterization of everybody who doesn't believe in governmentally enforced affirmative action must be a racist might be keeping some people who are not racists out of a reasonable conversation about affirmative action. You get what I'm saying? So ironically, I think sometimes our approach to promoting Affirmative action can actually be creating a less diverse opinion, set of opinions uh, in the things we're trying to express with each other. So anyway, I, but to back up and make the point, I'm saying we don't establish quotas, but instead we establish thresholds. And then we, after we've assessed whether we're measuring up to those thresholds or not, for instance, if we say, well, you know, the population in uh, North Texas is 18% African-American. And we're only 5% African-American at, at our college or, you know, whatever. I'm making up those numbers. Those have nothing to do with reality. Well, I mean, they have something to do with reality. They're in the ballpark. But the point is to say, oh, we're not measuring up to that number. Then you say, well, then what are we doing that's maintaining or creating barriers for reaching that population? That's what you ask. And then when you do that, you look at those practices and you make changes to them. Oh, we don't have anyone who... Uh, looks like students who are coming here, who are coming out of an African-American community, and, and they look at every professor, and they're all white, and they say, yeah, there's just nobody here who's going to understand the experience I had in my high school. Then nobody here is going to understand the experience that I have in my particular church or in my neighborhood or community or that I had in my family. And you can say, yeah, but we can still identify on the universal. Yeah, that's all fine. 
but it makes a difference when you see someone who you think will be able to identify with your personal experiences. And so you say to yourself, ooh, maybe we need to improve not just our student population diversity, but our staffing diversity or our faculty diversity or our governmental representatives and their diversity or, well, you know, whatever it is. So then you start making changes to your institution so that there are few barriers, fewer barriers. And as you do that, you just rinse and repeat, as they say about shampoo. Uh, you just you just do it again. You you measure everything again. Hey, here's what the population looks like in general. Here's what our population looks like. Here's where the difference is. Oh, let's let's see if we can find where there might be some. Oh, here's a barrier. Let's try to eliminate that next year. Let's measure again and see if we can fix that. And as you eliminate the barriers, you more organically begin to reach your thresholds. And as you do that, you don't create new prejudices. You create opportunities for overcoming the barriers that were there to begin with. So let me wind it up this way. I know it took two whole conversations just to get through this uh, talk about affirmative action in light of what I think was a mistake on the Supreme Court's part. I don't care about the legalities of it. I'm not a lawyer. Talk about all the constitutionality and all that stuff separately. Different discussion, but a moral decision, just just a moral decision about the value that affirmative action brings to the things that we're doing in higher education and that I think everybody ought to be thinking about. Let me just let me just conclude it this way by saying some of the things that I brought up at the end of the last episode, but that I want to emphasize and close on now. And that is that our attitudes about affirmative action are probably and currently they are this. I mean, just let's be frank. They're more of a reflection of our residual commitment to these passe culture wars. And I mean that insultingly. Come on, let's get out of the culture wars. They are more of a reflection of our residual commitment to these passe culture wars than they are to any serious ideological differences. There's not a serious ideological commitment someone has that keeps them from saying, you know, we can use some of our resources to help someone who has fewer resources. You can do that. Anybody can do that. We can have that conversation. So leaving that warrior mentality behind could be a healthy step toward being peacemakers. Giving us, instead of that warrior mentality, better understanding, better conversations, better practices, and then maybe, maybe even arriving at a place where we're better Christians. May it be so. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.